What's up, passengers? Welcome to Rearview Movies. Really excited to have you on for show number seven. We've already made it through seven movies at this point. Trevor, can you believe we've been talking about movies through six to this point? Um, Kind of. I mean, it's nothing different than a normal day for us. That's true. That's true. Lots of normal days here. Uh, I'm really excited about the movie we're going to talk about today. I think it's been a long time since Allen Iverson has gotten his due diligence. Uh, you know, had a really great career in the NBA and, and was really a, a really talented solo player. So no, 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 no. Wrong AI, sir. What's that? Wrong AI. Well, I just watched a whole lot of footage for nothing. That's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> no, just Josh, and we're going to talk about AI, artificial intelligence, movie released on June 30th of 2021. Trevor, tell us the deets about this film. Well, like you said, it came out on June 30th of 2021. It was directed by Steven Spielberg and the, stars... The Steven Spielberg. The Steven Spielberg, yes. Stars Haley Joel Osment, Jude Law, Francis O'Connor, Sam Robards, William Hurt and Jake Thomas. Uh, if you did not see this movie or just forgot what it was about, then let me warn you of possible spoilers ahead because let's be honest, you've had 20 years to see it. Mm-hmm. 2020 in, if you count the plot. Yeah. In the not so far future, the polar ice caps have melted and the resulting... Wait, 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 wait. This is... This is uh, Waterworld, isn't it? Sounds like Waterworld. Nope, this is AI. Okay. Um, in the not-so-far future, the polar ice caps have melted, and the resulting rise of the ocean waters has drowned all the coastal cities of the world. Withdrawn to the interior of the continents, the human race keeps advancing, reaching the point of creating realistic robots called mechas to serve them. One of the mecha-producing companies builds David, an artificial kid, which is the first to have real feelings especially a never-ending love for his mother, Monica. Monica is the woman who adopted him as a substitute for her real son, who remains in cryostasis, stricken by an incurable disease. David is happily living with Monica and her husband, but when their real son returns, his life changes dramatically. That's an interesting summary. I don't write these. I just pull these off of IMDb. Well, applause to IMDb for taking a movie with a plot that is... Just such a journey and trying to condense it down to something you could tell somebody in the elevator on the way to your floor. Mm -hmm. But you might have to press hold on the elevator if you're going to finish the story. Well, it's if you're going to the top floor of like the Empire State Building. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, looking at the numbers on this film, it looks like it was made for a budget of one hundred million dollars. Opening weekend of $29 million, uh, domestic of 78 and adding in the international of 157 This film grossed a worldwide total of $235 million. So made double its money back, so pretty good by all, uh, by all accounts there on the financial side of things. It was nominated for two Oscars, Best Original Score and Best Visual Effects. Did not win in either category. And Rotten Tomatoes gave this a 74, uh, certified fresh, as they say. And the audience, actually, this is a case of the critics like a movie and the audience likes it a little less. They gave it a 64. Rotten Tomatoes called this a curious but not always seamless amalgamation of Kubrick's chilly bleakness and Spielberg's warm-hearted optimism. AI is, in a word, fascinating. I'm not quite sure that's the word I would use, but getting into the story on this anyway, Trevor, where were you when you first saw this film? Um, so I won't lie, I'm kind of a Spielberg fanboy. So when this came out, I had to see it the first day. 
Um, and I actually committed myself to seeing it um, twice on the first day. So I saw it earlier in the afternoon, and I had already told some other people I'd go see it with them later on in the evening. Did so you go, I was did you go really, to the same theater? Yeah, I, yeah, I did. <laughs> we were on vacation too. Um, and I was really kind of nervous at, when I got there that I wouldn't like it or that I'd you know, not like it enough to want to see it a second time because I'd already committed myself to going, so I was just hoping that it would be good, and it was, so I didn't mind going to see it a second time, although that was probably enough at that point. <laughs> when did you see this for the first time? I saw this for the first time. I did not see it in theaters. I'm pretty sure I caught it on cable, and I will tell you I did not finish it. I got about halfway through and turned it off. Mm-hmm. Um it, yeah, that, that's my feedback. I definitely got in there and turned it off halfway through. Did not get to finish it. I thought it was really, really hard to follow. But that was 20 years ago, Scotty. So, you know, 20 years ago, Scotty may have been a lot less smart. Actually, confirmed. Was not as smart. Now, it's funny that you say, you know, the plot description from IMDb and what Rotten Tomatoes wrote because if IMDb's trivia page is to be believed, this was described to studio executives by Kubrick and Spielberg. Apparently, when they pitched this, they called it Blade Runner meets Fields of Dreams. (laughs) That's actually not a bad synopsis, really. (laughs) It's certainly the simplest synopsis that I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, and... um... This was actually a movie that Kubrick had been wanting to make for a very long time, um, probably since, you know, the 80s when he was first starting to think about it. And it was based on a short story already. I think it was a short story at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was trying to adapt it. But uh, the thought was, or at least the rumor was, I think, that he wanted to use an actual robot for the kid. And so he was kind of waiting for technology to catch up to him. I've heard that. Or, yeah. Or maybe not the kid. Maybe it was the, maybe it was the stuffed bear that follows him around mm-hmm. Teddy. Like he didn't want a puppet or a, or a voiceover like or anything like that. Yeah. So he was trying to wait for technology to catch up to him, but uh, he was working on it and he had shown Spielberg a lot of the stuff that he'd been putting together for mm-hmm. a number of years. And it was, he, Unfortunately, passed in 1999 um, while he was editing uh, Eyes Wide Shut, and I believe it was Spielberg that finished that movie off uh, with no credit, taking no credit. And there was somehow he got a hold of all the notes that Kubrick had been putting together for this one, mm-hmm. and decided that this was going to be his sort of homage to Stanley Kubrick the greatest filmmaker ever to a lot of people and try to go from there and make something out of it. So what do you think of Stanley Kubrick as one of the best filmmakers ever? I don't think I could pin down one specific one, but uh, he would certainly be in the top five, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, he really is that great. Um, Every time I see one of his movies, it's kind of like a new experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm always picking up stuff in, in things I hadn't ever seen before, but you know, he's done like probably three or four of the greatest movies ever, in my opinion, with 2001, mm-hmm. which arguably could be the best movie ever made. A Clockwork Orange, which yep. is just insane. And it's a, a crazy movie to watch, even though you know what's coming. If you've uh, yeah, seen it before. A, a thriller, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the Shining, which, mm-hmm. you know, a definitive doesn't movie. like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not anything like the book at all, but as it's as a movie itself, it's really fantastic. Well, and how many and then, times does the author really actually like the movie? 
Well, that's true too, but if you read the book and you see the movie, it's two different things. <laughs> the The only similarity is it's about a man named Jack Torrance in a hotel. Hmm. That's really about it. <laughs> There's a lot of um a lot of differences between the two, and I know Stephen King was not very happy with how it looked, but at the same time, that movie is absolutely fantastic, mm-hmm. and a lot of people would say it's probably one of the best horror movies ever made, and they're probably right. Yeah. Uh, and, and then finally you've got Full Metal, Full Metal Jacket. Jacket. Absolutely. Yeah, Definitive exactly. war movie. Yep. I remember people in high school being like, oh, yeah, that's the most realistic war movie I've ever seen. It's like, really? How many wars have you been to? <laughs> <laughs> and just like reiterating the stuff that their Vietnam vet uncle had shared with them before and also thought that was the most realistic war movie ever made of course that was in like 1997 and in 1998 we had private ryan so that kind of went out the way well i'm about to say i will say from the education side of things i know quite a few u.s history teachers who like to show saving private ryan but less that like to show full metal jacket i wonder why violence is not as bad as 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 potty mouse apparently i depending on how you define things that are worth watching in history i guess but No, maybe that's a testament to, to Kubrick as a filmmaker that he made a definitive movie in quite a few different genres, right? So yep. you know some directors that, you know, they're really good at this type of movie and they make this type of movie, but Kubrick made quite a few good movies and quite a few things, uh, not to mention some of the legendary attention to detail, the every frame of painting, uh, making Jack Nicholson do a take 127 times. Mm-hmm. Um, can can you recount that story in case others haven't heard it? Because it's a pretty crazy I, story. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I can recount it exactly, but you know Kubrick was famous for doing a lot of takes or you know holding the camera on a person waiting to get their reaction, the exact reaction he wanted. And you know Spielberg will do this too. He'll put the camera on and he'll kind of coach you as to what he wants to see your face do. Um, and. I know some actors don't really like that. There, there's a there is a story I remember where, um, uh, with uh, with regards to Schindler's List, where Liam Neeson was. I think it was the first scene where he was introduced. He's sitting there in a chair and he's smoking a cigarette. And apparently during the filming, Spielberg was telling him exactly how to hold it, how to put it in his mouth, how to uh, inhale, how to exhale. And Liam Neeson went to Ben Kingsley later on. He was just like, I can't. I can't do this. I can't work with this guy if this is how it's going to be every single day. And Kingsley was like, just, I think we just got to trust him on this one. And sure enough, I mean, we all know what, what, how that movie's taken now. But. Uh, yeah, Schindler's List turned out to be a pretty good film, I think. Yeah. But, you know, every time I see a shot where somebody's given like a crazy expression, like in A Clockwork Orange, where um, Malcolm, Mc, Malcolm McDowell's in the bathtub singing, singing in the rain in the house mm-hmm, that yeah. he abused the woman in and the guy's now paralyzed and he's pushed his head up against the door and he's hearing him sing this and he starts to put two and two together and there's a shot where he's just got his mouth open his eyes rolled in the back of his head and he's just shaking and i i I see that scene and i kind of wonder like how long was that camera sitting underneath that how long was kubrick just coaching him to get that particular expression was it was that at the end of a 45 minute take or something who knows Mm -hmm. Well, hey, that's that's the part that a lot of people don't always appreciate about the craft of acting in a movie is they can be taking for a long time to fulfill the director's vision. And it's probably the part of making movies that isn't so, you know, isn't so sexy, isn't so interesting to look at. But it's still, like you said, very important to making sure it happens the way the director wants it to. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this one here. Let's just go through it. and. Um... Yeah, yeah. Let's let's jump right into it. So this movie opens up in 
dramatic fashion with all these studio logos with not a single note on it. It's just dead silence. It's like, you know you're getting into something serious here. <laughs> so, but uh, then we see that this is taking place after a giant climate catastrophe, which has flooded the... Um, flooded all the coastal cities. There's a, a narration by Ben Kingsley letting us know about that. And um, then we meet our first real character in the movie, and that's William Hurt's character, the the owner of the uh, company that makes these robots. Mm-hmm. So, and he's um, this is really the the first boring exposition scene we get. Of course, so he's letting us kind of into the world and everything. He's got his own robot there, and I guess what he's really talking about here is that robots don't really feel they're just programmed to do things that we tell them to and he wants a robot to be genuine and love i guess for some kind of family tragedy of his own mm-hmm. so he's looking for a family that's had a tragic loss as well to set him up with this first child robot that nobody's ever built before mm-hmm. yeah which at the end of the day it's an interesting premise to act on and it's one of those where if you're trying to use this exposition scene to build the viewer's interest going into what you're going to see or almost set the table uh, how good of a job do you think they did at that i mean as best you can do and given the circumstance if you're trying to set it up and your world is too complicated to just drop you into it then you know that's probably the best way to go mm-hmm. but i mean he calls himself god pretty much in this so i mean you've mm-hmm. really kind of established what his mindset is but he's only in it like two or three scenes so he's not a very big character no but he's definitely the sort of the catalyst of everything else but well speaking of that i do have a question kind of jumping back to the beginning so obviously i'm not the kind of person to always say well hollywood's trying to send us messages and how you know uh, you could get very political with this and I'm not intending to, but I will ask this question. Do you think the fact that the earth is in some sort of dystopian climate future has any bearing on the plot of this movie? No. Is it really necessary? Well, I mean your climactic scene in New York city, which pretty much takes place underwater toward the end of the movie. But I don't really think it gives a whole lot of bearing to the movie. It's just letting you know, Hey, it's in the future and society has kind of collapsed a little bit. So there's not really any kind of environmental message here or anything else. Maybe if it was made today, they'd probably push it through a little bit more, but, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't quite as much at the forefront as it is now. Right. Uh, so this, so from there, we're going to jump right on into, uh, into the parents, correct? Yep. We meet, um, we meet Henry and Monica and they have uh, their son is in cryo sleep or something because he's, had like a accident or he's got some disease or something and he's been in there for five years and is it you know you put somebody in there and they just freeze into the same age forever is that how it works because i guess uh, and I, I will say i didn't 100 percent see that as i was watching it i was like well the kid's just kid just looks like he's frozen does that mean he's like already yeah. dead or like i yeah that that part didn't translate as well as i may have thought it would right well, all we know is that he's in there and the dad wants to move on and the mother can't for, you know, just she can't just get over the fact that her kid is maybe never coming back. Sure. So then I guess that is the type of person William Hurt's looking for to try to sort of give this a, a test run with his with his uh, child robot. They call them mechas, I guess. Um, yes, they do. Yeah. Quite often. So that is uh, where we where we bring in Haley Joel Osment as David, the uh, the robot that can love unconditionally, but they have to like code him first. So initially, I guess she's not too happy about this, and she doesn't really want him around because he is a little creepy looking. Um, <laughs> but you know, like his entry into the scene, I don't think 
everyone talks about Haley Joel Osment when he was younger as uh, as really good in the sixth sense, and then they just kind of leave it at that. But he's extremely good in this movie, mm-hmm. like to the point where I think that he's better in this than he is in any scene in the sixth sense. Well, without any makeup, he basically has to, with his face, communicate that he's semi-human. Yeah, and that's well, that and, sounds really tough. <laughs> and did you notice that he never blinks? in this movie mm-hmm. not one blink in the entire movie until the very end but you know there's never a scene where he's blinking his eyes and i think that was i don't know if that's written in the script or whatever or if that was a conscious decision by um by osmond to do that but you know it does drive home the point that he's not really human mm-hmm. uh, but he definitely has this human quality to him this you know he's this cute little boy you know running around the <laughs> But you know he's so quiet and he's freaking the mom out. So, well, and it's I tell you there was a, there were a couple scenes like especially as they were setting this up that made me kind of reflect on like parenting and conversations around that because in the beginning conversation where Henry is telling Monica we once we imprint him we have to either keep him forever or take him back to the factory to be destroyed because we cannot take him anywhere else. I was like, man, that's right. How harsh is that? Yeah. That's kind of this. That's kind of the stakes there. But I mean, you got to think. You know, this isn't. Yeah, he looks real, but he's not real. Mm-hmm. And they kind of keep going through that throughout the movie. And it is sort of a Pinocchio thing too. I mean, at a, at a later point, she'll read Pinocchio to to David and her actual kid when he wakes up. And yeah, you know, that's sort of the that sort of pushes him forward on his journey to try to figure out how to become a real boy, just like Pinocchio did. But you know. Mm-hmm that's not going to happen. So, and the, um, the, the turning point is that dinner scene, right? The, the kind yeah, of turning point in their relationship. That's actually a really, a really great scene because there's not a lick of dialogue in it. <laughs> yeah. And, it's a breaking bad scene. <laughs> yeah. It's um, yeah, it's a breaking bad breakfast scene, right? That's um, right. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. They, you know, it's all Osmond and the, and the, the parents reacting off of what he's doing, which is, mm-hmm. you know, doing that forced laughter or whatever, but that's the only action in there. Mm-hmm. It's just, them eating and him laughing and the, the it's actually there's more character development in that one scene than at any point in Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Looping back kids callback. Yeah. But um the uh, the other thing I want to point out is how that scene begins. That scene opens with a shot above the table looking through an open circular light. Mm-hmm. And it looks down through that and then the camera pans down until it's eye level with with David and the parents on either side of the frame. Mhm. Um, we'll see that again at another point in this movie, but that is another homage to Kubrick that comes straight out of Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. the war room scene kind of starts out above that, looking through the light that's over their head and bringing it down. So there's a couple things in here where, um, Spielberg tries to, uh, to pay some homage to, but so speaking of Monica, one of the interesting uh, alternatives we've talked about on previous episodes is, Hey, what if another actress wound up in that role? Uh, found out through digging that there were two other people under consideration for Monica. And that was Julianne Moore and Gwyneth Paltrow. Actually. I think that having somebody who's not quite as known in that role was probably better. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm not saying that obviously Julianne Moore and Gwyneth Paltrow, they're both Oscar winning actresses or, you know, Mm -hmm. they're, they would have done it really well even though the role only lasts a few minutes pretty much you know it's uh i think that having somebody that wasn't really known was probably the better move mm-hmm. i mean really the only the only person they really wanted to get in this movie is Haley Joel Osment because he was coming off of the sixth sense and yeah this may have been his first movie after that one um spielberg has been known to be a little bit of an opportunist when it comes to 
people coming off a big role. Um, so he'll grab somebody that's like he worked with Shia LaBeouf when Shia LaBeouf was all over the place mm-hmm. in uh, Transformers movies, and he was doing other movies outside of that. And Spielberg had to grab him, and you know, it sort of looked like they were going to transfer the Indiana Jones franchise over to him at mm-hmm. some point. Um, so I think that was the only one they really wanted to get in here was Haley Joel Osment, just because of where he was at that time. Obviously, mm-hmm. he's not. He still does stuff now, but it's not quite you know, leading role stuff like this. This was probably the first leading role he had and probably the last leading role he had. So you are correct looking at uh, the IMDb on this. It looks like Haley Joel Osment was in The Sixth Sense in 99. And between that and AI, he did honestly a bunch of TV series and voice work. He did a voice on Hey Arnold. Uh, fun fact there. Uh, no, I'm sorry. He was in a movie in 2000 called Pay It Forward as well. Oh, I remember that movie. Let's not talk about that one. <laughs> so, yeah, there was that one, a little bit of TV work. Uh, there was another one that looks like I'll Remember April he was in. But in terms of lar- in terms of probably large budget, large release, big budget movies, you're probably right. It sounds like that was probably one of the ones that was in there. Uh, Pay It Forward was pretty big. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of billed as his as his movie, and though he was more of a support role in that one. So jumping into one of my first notes as I watched this movie, especially once the once the little boy came back, you know, after the imprint and, and that, you know, some of those scenes. Honestly, I found myself not liking the parents very much. No, I didn't either. And it's kind of interesting how they how they do this because they start out showing David really creepy and there's not anything to really like about him yeah. at all. Because he has no real personality to it. Yeah. And you're kind of feeling for Monica at this point because she's been, this has been thrusted upon her. Uh-huh. She doesn't want it. Right and about then, that scene where she shoves him in a closet like a vacuum cleaner and then she right. goes back and realizes he's supposed to be a boy. What am I doing? Yeah. That's <laughs> not, you know, is it a game? Yes. Tag. Found you. <laughs> right. But um, that's, uh, you know, then it sort of shifts a little bit when he actually does, when they do the imprinting. She has to read him like seven random words. Mm -hmm. Now he's hers for the next 2000 years. She (laughs) cannot shake him off no matter what. And they can't return. No warranty, no take backs. Yep. That's it. You know, you're done. You have him. And, you know, just so coincidentally, you know, the, the, the son wakes up at that point. There was a part there where I wanted to, I, I thought was kind of interesting when she's in the, I guess she's in the bathroom getting ready to go out. And he just sort of lovingly looks up at her and and asks if she'll die. Mm-hmm. And I, that that scene sort of took on a little bit of a different meaning for me between now and 20 years ago. Because okay. I've had that conversation already myself. Oh, gosh. Right. And have you? I mean, as kids, does your kids sort of pick up on this that, you know, there is... I mean, yours, we're, theirs are both young. I mean, yeah, yours is six, mine's five, and your <laughs> other one, your youngest is... Uh, youngest is, is about, about to turn two here in a few about weeks. About to turn two, okay. We've had some conversations with Elizabeth about those things because obviously you, at a certain amount of time, you just those things happen and you have to yep. explain them to the child. But it hasn't gotten personal yet. Like, well, what about you? Yeah. Like, we haven't, well, yeah, we haven't been there yet. Yeah, it hasn't gotten there yet, but, you know, he's he's definitely asked about some of the stuff you know mm-hmm. but uh um we just try to kick it off it's like oh that's not gonna happen for a long 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 time yeah you know, when you're really old and then he goes well you know my great grandma's old so what about her it's like God, just stop stop <laughs> we're not talking about this yeah so <laughs> but um yeah that was that was interesting and she handled it well it's a difficult conversation to have even with a, a child or a mecca mm-hmm. 
Well, I guess that that might just be part of the the shift that David is supposed to be making towards more feeling oriented and more, you know, having those emotions, right? Because if if, if he doesn't have the emotions, just like, well, at some point that being is going to stop, is going to stop being. (laughs) Right. So that makes sense. But no, back again, I, I just think that these parents, they just, they did so much. You never actually see them talk to their children once Martin comes home. Right. Like everything that happens, the parents aren't there. You know, something happened, you know, maybe it's Martin messes with David or the friends at the pool mess with David. So even culminating in the scene where, where David drags Martin into the pool, Mm -hmm. you don't think a five minute conversation of, Hey, why did he do that? (laughs) Yeah. I I think a a lot of movies have that as the solution. It's kind of like, well, why didn't they just, you know, talk? Yeah. <laughs> because that would solve a whole lot of problems. Yeah, he tried to put a pie server through the kid's arm. That's why he freaked out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, Martin's definitely a... He's a little prick to him is what he is. I mean, there's no... Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he thinks he's a toy. Yeah. You know, he, doesn't, he, exactly. he doesn't realize what was what, what his presence here was supposed to be. He kind of treats him like a like a Buzz Lightyear. Absolutely. No, you're, right. you're 100% so. right. Um, and, you know, going back to what I think is a theme, a lot of times when you have movies that involve robots, I think it's a popular theme uh, that the monsters are really the people. Mm-hmm. We think of the we think of the person as the or we think of the robot as this cold, unfeeling thing. But all the cold, unfeeling stuff comes from the human characters. Yeah, none of the human characters have anything you really like about them. No, our, our main, the main people we really like in this movie are you know um, David and then Joe when we meet him, but also you know Monica of course because mm-hmm. just his desire to get back to her is kind of is kind of heartwarming, I guess. Mm-hmm. But they eventually do have to get rid of him because you know they decide that it's best for him to go back especially after he's threatened to kill monica with the whole cutting the hair thing or dragging right martin into the pool so she doesn't want him to go back because she knows what's going to happen to him so she just takes him out into the middle of nowhere and leaves him there (laughs) well thank god that parents talk because my sister told me to do some awful things to my parents and i'm glad that they were like who told you to do this yeah exactly (laughs) thanks becky yeah <laughs> but no um, yeah which and again that's a long time we're probably through what a 30 45 minutes of screen time before we're, we're we get close to, to an, we're probably close to an hour at which this point. to a point that could yeah. very well be the beginning of the movie right yeah the scene where he does get dropped off a couple things to note there number one the car driving down the two-lane road very clockwork orange looking mm-hmm. so another homage to kubrick there i thought his bedroom um, was very kubrick looking too yeah that's true um, and also, if you didn't know this was a Steven Spielberg movie, then you knew now at the abandonment scene because it's got everything that you see in a Spielberg movie. The downcast lights coming through the trees. The roads are always covered in water. That's that's his cinematographer's thing. Um, Janusz Kaminski, he's worked with him since uh, since Schindler's List. He's He's shot all of Spielberg's movies since then. And his thing is that you wet the roads and it pops the colors a little more so they always have a like a fire department budget in their in their movies to come out and hose the roads down before they start filming so (laughs) that's kind of fun but and fog and everything there and i mean it really looks like a it looks like a genuine spielberg movie those are all his trademarks right there Mm -hmm. in one scene and that's a tough scene to watch but and then she drives away leaving him in the dust and spielberg rips himself off here by showing david in the rearview mirror Looking a little Jurassic Park-ish. Hey, that's the name of the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so now we meet Jude Law finally. 
Jude was in. my favorite character from the movie. Gigolo Joe. I thought he was fantastic. And yeah. I'm trying to remember, this was the time period when Jude Law was contractually obligated to be in every movie that came out, right? Pretty much. He was everywhere. <laughs> you know, I know that became kind of an in-joke and kind of a cultural thing, but there was there was a little bit of time there where he had at least a small part in quite a few movies that came out. He was he was working hard. He had like, he had like four leading roles in a movie one year, and he was up for an Oscar for one of those or... And I remember the, at the Oscars that particular year, Chris Rock was like, how many movies is this guy in? <laughs> and then, then Sean Penn being a stick in the mud, he kind of comes up later to present. And he's like, I just want to let our host know that Jude Law is one of our finest actors. Yeah, like he, like he, oh, like you can't he, take he, a he joke, can you? He didn't get that Chris was having fun. Yeah. Speaking of Chris, uh, you do know Chris actually has a cameo in this film. Yeah, he does. <laughs> um, really, really short, blink and you miss it kind of scene. They're putting a mecha into a cannon to shoot it through a propeller, and it's uh, it's doing the very classic. What are you doing, man? Come on, like the, the Chris Rock shtick. But yeah, we meet we meet Joe, and he's a he's a pleasure bot, as they call them. So. Which they took about a what a thirty second window to explain earlier in the movie as to set context for when we see Joe. Yeah, exactly. So, and he's got like I guess he's got like an iPod in his neck that he clicks. It <laughs> does this, been, yeah. He's been preloaded with some old songs to kind of set the mood, but um, nothing newer than like 1975. Yeah, but I liked how he can, you know, he changes his hair based on what his what his clients preferences and uh-huh. i never noticed he put an accent on when he went into the room where the girl was eventually dead so. well he had so few lines before it was kind of tough to pick up on yeah he had so many lines in that first scene and then you you really you're right i noticed it probably like the last line of dialogue he said uh you didn't get a lot of room to grab onto that i guess he's uh the the woman he went to see i guess her jealous husband killed her maybe yep. that's what i grabbed out of it and right now it looks like joe did it so they're gonna come for him so i guess he he pops out his little registration tag from under his skin and now he's in danger of being picked up by some unfavorable people or at a flesh fair that's what i was getting at is the the flesh fairs if this was a real reality in the next 20 years a flesh fair would definitely be a thing right 100 percent, 100 percent. and it would be and i think that Spielberg had the right idea of the type of clientele that would be attracted to this type of thing. <laughs> so county fair meets political rally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so very interesting. I think they got the music wrong. Um, the music, the music provided at the flesh fair was courtesy of ministry. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, uh, well, what would you, what do you think a better music choice would have been to, to set that scene? Country. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there goes half of our viewer base. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but no, it, it's it's an interesting point because Ministry, if, if I remember correctly, I'm not a huge Ministry fan, but they're they're essentially like punk and kind of fringe, right? They're like an industrial metal type kind of type. Got thing. it. Okay. Um, they're uh, and he's the lead singer. Um, is very like politically charged, so he has a lot of like real heavy in the politics imagery in his music and stuff like that. I don't really know a whole lot about him either, but that's... Mm-hmm. So he may have even taken a little bit of pleasure in this role. He probably did. Well, and I, I remember reading that um, he asked Steven Spielberg to direct their music video for that song that was in the movie, because this was an original song for this movie, yeah. apparently. And um, Spielberg told him no, <laughs> or he just, I guess he 
he didn't return his call or something. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, they they uh, didn't tell him, or he didn't end up doing it, which is, would have been crazy to see Steven Spielberg directing a music video by Ministry. But hey, man, gotta shoot your shot sometimes, right? Yep. David and Joe get picked up by this floating moon, um, like like hot air balloon type of thing that looks mm-hmm. like a full moon. Almost and, like uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, if you think about it. Yeah, so here we go again, right? But <laughs> and then the the guy in the the guy in the balloon is actually Brendan Gleeson um, in a small role here. But one of the first things I remember seeing him in outside of Braveheart. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's got a small role there, and then we uh, we get to the flesh fair, and he's in a cage with all the other robots they picked up. And what they're doing here is they're just they're blowing up and disfiguring and maiming all these robots um mm. for fun so that the the people in the audience can kind of get a thrill over watching this happen because they feel like they're being challenged you they're know? being taken over by machines right yeah so i guess a little girl sees david in the cage and nobody knows that anybody makes a child robot so they're just they're floored to see to see this the little girl i i recognized and i couldn't place her so i had to look it up the Actress that plays her is actually Hunter King, mm-hmm. and um, she's the older sister of her more famous sister, um, Joey King, who's in those movies on Netflix, The Kissing Booth. Oh. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. You're always going to find these people that are like in their mm-hmm. mid to late 20s now that were little kids in these movies, and that's kind of interesting. Or maybe yeah. in their 30s for... I guess Haley Joel Osment's that old now. Too, so. Well, just one of the nice benefits of, of catching a movie uh, in the rear view. So uh, during that scene, again, that whole flesh fair thing happening for me, it kind of hammers home the point. Again, you got humans doing awful things. They're destroying all these things just to make a point. You know, they had that big thing at the front. They're calling it a celebration of life. Yep. Uh, which is another word for a funeral. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, I thought very interesting and intentional. Um, and, uh, and, you know, then the whole thing comes apart when, like you said, the whole thing comes apart when Haley Joel Osment starts begging and pleading because the acid's dropping on his arm or on Joe's uh, mm-hmm. arm. And he's like, no, no, no. And the woman in the audience is like, Mecca, don't plead for their life. Yep. Yeah, so that's how they kind of think that this this can't be right. And Brendan Gleeson's giving them the warning that, you know, they're mimicking our emotions now. So what's going to happen later? They're going to come for your kids, as we can see here. But um, yeah, <laughs> well, so they're they're let away. Um, they're let out. And so now they're still kind of, um, I guess they're still kind of on the run because they could still be picked up somewhere else. And mm-hmm. I guess Joe's still a wanted man. But yes, um, they, uh, they get this idea to go to this place called Rouge City, right? Um, where the entrance to the city is a super highway that goes through a giant mouth that's wide open. <laughs> yeah. Which is, um, I guess, was one of the sketches in Kubrick's notebook, was that the city was going to kind of look like that. And just to draw the whole, like, Pinocchio thing back into this, this is sort of the Pleasure Island scene of the movie. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, and up until now, Jude Law has done a pretty poor job playing Jiminy Cricket in this because he <laughs> hasn't really... You know, David kind of got him out of that situation in the first place. It wasn't really Jude Law doing anything. He just happened to be the the one that David grabbed onto at that point. Right. So. He was just kind of a tag along. Yeah. Yeah. Now, side note, for an environmentally dystopian future where everything has gone to crap, that city is surprisingly well built and the infrastructure is pretty solid. Yeah. Well, I guess it's above water, you know, so... <laughs> um, but they uh, they go there. They're looking for they're looking for the blue fairy, the the, the fairy from the um, Pinocchio book, because he thinks if he right. finds the blue fairy, then she'll be able to magically turn him into 
a real boy. So they're looking for this guy named Dr. No, which is not N-O like the Bond movie. <laughs> it's it's Dr. K-N-O-W. So yeah, Dr. I'll help no. you with the spelling. It's G-O-O-G-L-E. <laughs> yeah, he's a... He's a <laughs> It's Google voiced by Robin Williams, actually. <laughs> and Robin Williams is, of course, outstanding, even in this very small piece that he has. Yeah. I guess they, they finally see this guy, and um, it's just a big computer, and they're able to find out where the Blue Fairy is. But apparently it's just been kind of um, it's been kind of a ruse by William Hurt's character to get him to come to the, um, the factory. Mm-hmm. To, get, to, to get him, him back, yeah. To get him back, yeah. So... So they end up getting out of there and they go to New York City. And this is where we first see the environmental disaster future play out because mm-hmm. everything is submerged underwater. All the skyscrapers are poking up through the water. Um, also a sighting of the World Trade Center. I know that sometimes after that um, after that uh, uh, attack, some people went back and digitally removed that stuff. Huh. So it was interesting to see that they still left that in there. There's no reason to digitally remove it, but it There's definitely not. still it, it definitely know. still gives you pause, of course. I def I don't really see the reason to remove it, you know. Obviously if this was going to be, you know, oh this is our future, you know, 50 years from now, then yeah, those buildings wouldn't be there, so we got to take them out, but I don't think that that's that's unnecessary. You can leave them in there, so Anyway, then we get there and we see David meets himself essentially, right? Yes. Um, lots of himself. <laughs> yeah, lots of himself. But one in particular who actually talks to him, and I found this really fascinating because Haley Joel Osment obviously plays both these parts in this scene, and he plays the other one, the second one, ever so slightly different, you know, to kind mm-hmm. of give you this idea that they're all they all look the same but they're all going to have their own unique personalities when you take them out of the box which goes back to the point of what he was trying to do in the first place make a unique robot right yeah so but uh i guess david doesn't like seeing him there because he thinks that he's gonna take monica away from him so he yep like, bashes the thing's head in or something. He, he does the first really evil thing that he does in the script yeah but then david does see all these other boxes with him you know packaged up and ready to go and i, I you know the only thing I wanted to know is why, you know, I get that David's modeled after William Hurt's kid in this movie, but why do they make them all the same face? You know, mm-hmm. they got, yeah. they, they have millions to sell. So there's going to be a million of these kids walking around. They all look the same where all the other Mecca are, are very different from each other. That doesn't make, yeah, that you, you make can at least get an iPod that. in different colors, man, for God's sake. Exactly. So <laughs> No, no, I agree. I thought there was one thing. So there was kind of a plot inconsistency I was trying to get a hold of. So basically, does this mean that William Hurt, every time he came across a parent in his company who was going through some kind of tragedy and they went to experiment, did he send multiple Davids out and wait for the first one to come back? Well, no, I think at the very beginning of the movie there, the the guy, one of his um, one of his coworkers yeah. or whatever sits down and he goes, there's a family tragedy that might just fit what you're looking for. So it sounds like they were screening all the members of the okay. company to find one particular person that they wanted to try to sell. Got it. Um, and if I remember correctly, uh, Clark Gregg is in that scene when they're scouting yeah. through people, uh, otherwise known as Agent Coulson. Yep, Agent Coulson makes a nice <laughs> appearance in here too. Mm-hmm. So even even gets a little bit of FaceTime. Nothing too much, but so let's see. Uh, we get here and a really eye-opening scene for David. He does not like what he's seeing here. He realizes that the blue fairy is just is just the little statue he yeah. saw outside the window. 
yeah, he's never gonna he's never gonna be a real boy. Monica doesn't want him anymore. She doesn't love him. That's what he thinks, and all of that. So, um, yeah, so he ends up taking a plunge into the water off the skyscraper. Um, but Joe goes down there and like the. I guess it's like a boat helicopter, a submarine copter or something. Yeah, you talk about technology been, that has gone somewhere, man. Woo. Yeah, so he um, <laughs> he goes down there, and then he's eventually captured for his role in the murder of that that woman. Just in just in time to uh, drop Haley Joel Osment off on his on the last leg of his journey. Yep, which we go and he dives down in the water, and he ends up going to Coney Island, which is where the the Blue Fairy is yeah you know, but it's just a statue of this blue right area, right essentially and so he gets under there that one is very water worldish where he's flying around underneath the city in mm-hmm. there um but with six years of better effects put on <laughs> it <laughs> yeah he ends up in there this is probably this is a very devastating scene where he gets to this um this blue fairy and he mm-hmm. parks the the copter there but then the um the, the Ferris wheel that's near him that falls down and traps him down there. Mm-hmm. And there's no way out at this point. And he's just asking to please, 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 Blue Fairy, make me a real boy. We kind of just pull back yeah. from that, leaving them in the darkness. And it's just, it's really, really heartbreaking to see that. It's a really devastating scene. And it's probably one of Spielberg's darkest moments. I mean, if we take out all of Schindler's List, which is just a really dark movie with an uplifting ending, but <laughs> to an okay, you know, yeah. in some of his fictional stuff, we'll say this is a really this is a really dark moment for him, and then it really just drives the point home even further that he sat there doing this for two thousand years, you know, and I think that's where people really lose interest in this movie is when we jump forward 2,000 years and now all of a sudden there's aliens walking around? I would agree with you 100% because one of my biggest criticisms of this film is there were way too many points that the movie should have ended. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I can I can kind of see that. But they do want to give that nice send-off to him. And if this was a Kubrick movie, maybe it would have ended there. Mm-hmm. But Spielberg doesn't do that. You know, he doesn't have his downer endings. Yeah, but even know. even the upper ending, and I know we're kind of getting to that point, but even the upper ending on this is still kind of a buzzkill. Well, it's sort of, yeah. So they the aliens, I guess, find him and revive him, and they tell him that they can bring somebody back from the old time, but once that person goes to sleep, then they're dead forever and they can't bring him back. So as long as they have a piece of the person, like a fingernail, right. then they can do it. <laughs> Well, David's teddy bear happened to save the a teddy bear was keeping the hair. Yeah, that he tried to cut off of Monica near the beginning of the movie. And so they're able to use that to bring Monica back for a day. And now David just has the best day ever. Right. You know, Monica treats him in a way she never actually treated him during her time alive. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I guess she has no idea that she died or whatever. And I guess you can only come back to a point where you're how old you were when your hair was done or whatever. And not, I, I don't know, but <laughs> and see, this is, this is where things kind of fall apart on this because uh, again, well, that's, that's don't, if you're going to do this thing and you're going to make it, you're going to try to give David a happy ending by having this time with his mom. If it's all kind of a, cause it's all kind of a simulation he's in anyway. Right. So if it's a simulation computer program, just, let him go to sleep Re- with mom and live that day over and over again, right? Yeah, or re- replay it. Right. But, why Why tie, you know, it's not a freaking credit card contract. They tied a million yeah. conditions in on it. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, he does have the best day and it's nice. It's just one day and, mm-hmm. you know, she goes to sleep and that's how the movie ends. She falls asleep and dies. 
and David, for the first time in the entire movie, actually closes his eyes. Mm-hmm. And goes to and, sleep, too. Yep. And, yeah, he goes to sleep. And that's it. So we pan back, and the, all the lights in the house shut off and everything. And there's a final dedication after the end of the credit crawl. It says it's for Stanley Kubrick, which is kind of nice. I would have put it right up front, but, hey, at least it went mm-hmm. in there somewhere. So, um, But that's it. That's AI. Um, after After finally finishing it now... What's your thought on it now? I got to be honest. When I finally finished it, I liked it better in the middle than I did the first time I watched it. This time I actually did. It did hook me enough to allow me to finish. But you know what? Let me let me not say that in a way that puts the onus on the filmmakers. I decided to finish it uh, at the end of the movie. And to be perfectly honest, I just thought that bringing in aliens as part of the plot was a little was a little crazy foreign and a little too disorienting. That's mm-hmm. honestly my biggest thing about the plot is in a lot of places, it's very disorienting. I mean, that's also a Spielberg thing and I'm not using that as a, as a defense or yeah. anything, but I mean, he, if he can stick an alien in a movie, he's going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's done, uh, you know, this is actually the second movie that he has a sole screenwriting credit on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one was close encounters. Mm-hmm. So the dude loves aliens and <laughs> I can't blame him because I think they're pretty cool too. Well, yeah, but, but you're, but you're dealing with a concept when you're talking about using mechas and robotics and and artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. you're pretty alien as it is. That's you know? true. And it is a little odd. I don't know the reason for it other than to just allow him to have that other moment with her. Mm-hmm. And that may be the only reason that you can bring her back. I mean, how else are you going to bring it back? Could they find David somehow and then see that he's really, you know, maybe in pain and instead of destroying him, they just sort of hook him up to a machine and just replay certain a simulation over in his head? You know, would that would that have been a better ending? To, um, to give us, if, if the movie was going to end with him, if the movie has to end day, with David and his mom in the bed, right? You, we have to get to the same ending. How do we get there? Yeah, that's an would interesting that have question. Been better to, would that have been better to pull him out of the water? Have William Hurt be the rescuer? And well, like, let's oh, not okay. forget he's not going to die in the water. Yeah, because remember we established in the beginning he doesn't even breathe underwater. He just kind of chills. Right. It's just another place. Well, and he's never he's never exposed to the water either. So he's in that thing, that mm-hmm. um, cockpit or whatever. Right. So, so, I mean, at any point, he could have given up and swam to the surface. Yeah, but that's not in his programming. His programming is that's his fair. desire, and his desire was to be a real boy so he could... That's true. You know, so Monica would love him. So Which I, is kind of mm-hmm. depressing, too. It's supposed to be an uplifting ending, but... Right. For a mom that, quite frankly, never really loved him in the first place. <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's the whole thing is like mom. Again, you go back to humans doing bad things. Monica and Henry kind of used him as a gap child until their other child healed, mm-hmm. you know, which they obviously never expected by the by her reaction and everything else. Um, but I don't know. I, it's an interesting question. If the movie has to end with David and his mom, mom, air quotes, reunited, how? How do we get there? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question. Yeah. Uh, well, without aliens, I don't know. Maybe even the alien thing isn't as big of an issue as I thought. They, for a while, there, it felt like one of those team-building exercises. You have to get over the rope, but you can't use your feet. But you must only say the names of fruits if you talk to each other. Like, there were so many rules and conditions put on David seeing his mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then finally he just said, if you want me happy, I need to see mom. Yep. Um, so I, I don't know that that's probably my biggest critique of the movie and why, um, good enough to finish, but very convoluted and not the kind of movie I would watch again, because I'm not even really sure what the movie was telling me. (laughs) 
Well, it's just telling you Pinocchio in a very different way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Essentially, what it is. Right. You're, you're not even you're not even sure what the overarching message is of the movie or like any kind of a. Uh, you know, because again, I to be perfectly frank, well, the, the simplest ending the would have been is, for David to be down there by himself, dead. But that's not yeah. fair. The message of the movie is love conquers all. I guess you know. I mean, but that's just <laughs> that that's a broad ranging thing that you can just slap on pretty much any movie, mm-hmm. I guess. But I don't know the whole thing. Like I said, the whole thing's a love letter to Kubrick. I mm-hmm. mean, that's if Kubrick's name was on this, it wouldn't have been. You know, it wouldn't have been opening number one at the box office, right? I mean, I remember, I remember going to see Eyes Wide Shut in the movie theater when it came out in 1999, and people walked out. And when they were done, people got up and left. You know, at the end of the movie, they got up and left. They were like, "What was that?" You know, two yeah. and a half hours of that. You know, they just don't get it because he's not the most direct filmmaker. Yeah. And if you would have known going into that that you're not gonna get you know, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman in Far and Away, you're going to get Stanley Kubrick doing what he does best, which is being really weird. and <laughs> Kind of operating home. on the fringes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, telling a really great story, a really dark story, but and, doing and it a, in a very different way. Oh, sure, and and he's and, and he did that very well in other movies. I mean, uh, Full Metal Jacket had some very fantastic depictions, like you said earlier, of what it's like to kind of descend into madness as mm. a soldier, right? And yep. the same thing with The Shining, you know, descending into madness because of your own solitude and your own feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, and I, then yeah. Clockwork Orange would be being saved from your madness only the, to realize that you're incapable of doing so. If you're right. crazy, you're crazy. That's it. Right. Um, so no, I, I guess at the end of this, uh, that was my biggest thing. I felt kind of convoluted about it, but uh, again, you're the Spielberg guy. You're the guy that really loves this, <laughs> loves this film. Uh, how did you feel about it on, on, in the review? So if I would have seen it back in, well, I did see it, but if seeing it back in, you know, 2001, yeah, I'd probably be really geeky Spielberg and be like, I give it a nine out of 10, you know, but realistically, now that I'm looking at it in the rear view with a little bit more perspective on certain things. Yeah. So maybe I didn't love it as much as I did when I first saw it, but that was also me at 18 years old, just freaking out over the fact that there was another Spielberg movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, in a year we'd be getting two new ones that I knew about. So I was like, yeah, we got this one. Then we got one next summer. Then we got one next Christmas. Woo. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still, it's great. It's great. I'm not going to lie. This is still like, you know, if, it, if I'm, if I'm rating this on like, if I'm writing a review and it's giving a, you know, one to four stars, sure. like I used to do on a, on an old website I, I, I had, um, you know, it's four. I give four, like, it's really great. But maybe I don't love it quite as much as before. Um, it just has a different perspective this time around, maybe as a parent and kind of seeing this kid and what he's doing just because he loves his, his parents. I mean, because kids love their parents, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they have no reason not to. As long so as they're, they're doing just, things right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do, yeah, right. <laughs> let's, let's not talk about that now. But, I mean, it's, it really is an unconditional thing. I mean, like, you know, we'll argue, but... Then later on, he's just like, hey, let's do this. So it's, you know, it's completely in the past at that point. So, Well, I will say if uh, if my son is ever asked by aliens to recreate the perfect day, I'm pretty sure if he only gets one of us, he's choosing mom. But 
Well, yeah, I wouldn't be chosen either, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, just mama's boys. I guess that's all it is. Yep. Um, well, folks, it was great talking about AI in the rearview mirror. I hope that uh, we did a good job. If you thought we missed some stuff, we'd love to hear you tell us about it on social media. Don't forget, you can interact with us on social media and tell us your thoughts and questions about the next movie we're going to catch in the rearview mirror. And which one's that, Trevor? Well, we are going to do a full 180 here, <laughs> going from this to something completely different. Next week, we're going to have a look at Scary Movie 2. Well, I got I to hand it to you. That's a pretty solid one to watch. We'll see. Please feel free to subscribe and continue to listen to us as we take you through this journey. You can find us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere else that you get your podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week.